comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9, to chapter 7, verse 9. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9. Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Everything is permissible for me, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Food for the stomach and the stomach for food, but God will destroy them both. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said, the two will become one flesh. But he who unites himself with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a man commits are outside his body, but he who sins sexually sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honour God with your body. Now, for the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to marry, but since there is so much immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should fulfil his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife's body does not belong to her alone, but also to her husband. In the same way, the husband's body does not belong to him alone, but also to his wife. Do not deprive each other, except by mutual consent and for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again, so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I say this as a concession, not as a command. I wish that all men were as I am. But each man has his own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. Now to the unmarried and the widows, I say, it is good for them to stay unmarried as I am. But if they cannot control themselves, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Thanks, Steve. Thanks, Jacob. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and we crave the ministry of your spirit to open your word and to open our hearts. We know that as the scriptures burn within us, convictions grow and character is forged. And lives are changed. We pray that by your spirit 
through your word, we would be led to feast on Christ this morning. That he is our hope, our joy and our strength. And as we look at this matter of sexual immorality, help us to see it within the framework of your word and the hope of the gospel. Speak to us and may our lives be changed for the better through being here this morning. In Jesus' name. Amen. Now I want you to know that Carl allocated the topics in this series. So he he seems to think that I'm eminently qualified to speak about sexual immorality. And um, perhaps as a flawed, sinful human being, I'm more qualified than he realises. It's often lamented that uh, sexual morals are on the slide in our world. Uh, They're no longer what they used to be, and it appears that research would bear this out. I I did a bit of Googling uh, just to find out, you know, because I think that things are changing and not for the good. And uh, here's just some, some information. The Australian Bureau of Statistics show that since 2014, roughly 80% of people live together before they marry. In 1975, when I turned 18, uh, it was 16%. 16%. In 1992, it was 55%. But now it's about 80%. So four out of five live together before they're married. A summary of a recent Victorian state government survey of teenagers and sexual issues found, and I quote, most young people in years 10 and 12 are sexually active to some degree with either oral sex or genital sex. One in four teenagers report that they are either drunk or high during their most recent sexual encounter. And most teenagers do not practice what is called safe sex, using a condom. Boundaries of what is considered acceptable morally are being pushed more and more, whether it's through movies, you name it, DVDs, the internet, all kinds of things. Movies that that used to be R-rated and now 15 plus, things that were previously off limits are now becoming acceptable. Then there's a very, very high percentage of males and more and more females who are into pornography. Victoria even has elected a prominent figure in the porn industry to parliament and is a consulting figure for the Victorian government. Research shows that the majority of Aussies no longer view marriage as a lifelong commitment. Apparently the goal and expectation of the majority of Australians, this has come out of surveys, those who are in a serious relationship, whether married or de facto, is their goal is to practice what is called serial monogamy, where you have a number of sexual relationships, one after the other, but never more than one at a time. So you're faithful to your current partner, but if things don't work out, then leave and move in with someone else. And you just carry on. Clearly, today's children, teenagers and young adults live in a highly sexualised world with the pressure of sexual temptation far more than I ever faced growing up in the 1960s and 70s. 
these Facebook selfies. Shane Warne has popularised sexting. Um, the evidence is plain in the sex education in our schools, the movies, homes, courts, parliament, you name it. Sadly, the ongoing Royal Commission into Childhood Sexual Abuse has showed and highlighted in a, in a sad way that Christians, uh, Christian leaders and churches are not immune from this either. But we need to remember that there is nothing new under the sun. I came across this. 1,600 years ago, the church father Augustine was sharing the gospel with a Roman aristocrat named Firmus, F-I-R-M-U-S. And when the matter of chastity before marriage and faithfulness within marriage came up, this is what he exclaimed. He said, If he became a Christian, the burden of having sex only with his wife would be almost impossible to bear. That was 1,600 years ago. Nothing much has really changed. Human nature is still the same. We just find different ways of channeling it and expressing it. Back in 2004, on August the 10th, Dr Muriel Porter wrote a letter to the editor of The Age in Melbourne And she said, and the letter was entitled, The Archbishop is Wrong on Abortion. And she said that it's unrealistic to teach that sex belongs only to marriage. Now, is that fundamentally any different from what this firmus was saying back 1,600 years ago? The very idea of abstinence before marriage and faithfulness in marriage just gets ridiculed. Now, such attitudes towards sex, singleness and marriage collide absolutely head-on with the Bible. Listen to this from Hebrews 13.4. Marriage should be honoured by all, and the marriage bed kept pure, for God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. People need to hear that and, and understand that. They may not like it. What about today's reading? Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body. If I lie to you, it's something I do out, outside with you. If I punch you, it, it's something I do outside of myself. But sexual immorality, whoever sins sexually, sins against his own body. The very nature of the act of sex is that, that it's an internal thing and it, and it affects you bodily. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honour God with your bodies. The Bible teaches us to flee sexual, sexual immorality like beachgoers from a tsunami. Or like Lot fleeing for his life out of Sodom before fire and brimstone rained on it. Or like Joseph from the sexual advances of Potiphar's wife saying, come lie with me and he takes off and leaves his coat. When was the last time you followed that practice to flee from sexual immorality? And, and turned your back on something immoral and just hurried in the opposite direction. 
It's an honourable thing to do. The Bible encourages us to do that. If you did, you haven't been scarred in any way by fleeing it. You're wise. And if you didn't, you may well be regretting it now. The commands and prohibitions in the Bible are for our benefit. And to follow them is to be wise, not foolish or naive. Listen to this wise counsel that was written around about 3,000 years ago. Listen to your father who gave you life and do not despise your mother when she is old. May your father and mother rejoice. May she who gave you birth be joyful. My son, give me your heart and let your eyes delight in my ways. For an adulterous woman is a deep pit and a wayward wife is a narrow well. Like a bandit, she lies in wait and multiplies the unfaithful among men. Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has strife? Who has complaints? Who has needless bruises? Who has bloodshot eyes? Those who linger over wine, who go to sample bowls of mixed wine. Do not gaze at wine when it's red, when it sparkles in the cup, when it goes down smoothly. In the end, it bites like a snake and poisons like a viper. Your eyes will see strange sights and your mind will imagine confusing things. You will be like one sleeping on the high seas, lying on top of the rigging. So it's a guy in a boat, a sailor, say. They hit me, you'll say, but I'm not hurt. They beat me, but I don't feel it. When will I wake up so I can find another drink? That's Proverbs 23. I can just picture this guy. Or maybe I've got a quirky sense of humour. I don't know, but I, I had a real chuckle over this. This guy wakes up. And he's high up in the mast somewhere in the rigging. He probably looks around and says, what am I doing here? But he, he, he shouts out from the top of the rigging, they hit me but I'm not hurt. Oh, my head, oh, my head. They beat me but I didn't feel it. Hey, mate, can you throw me up a couple of Panadol? Oh, I've got spew all over me and I feel awful. My ribs are killing me. Something must have happened. I don't know what it was. I've aches and pains everywhere. I might be up here for days. There's no way I can climb down. If only I'd listened to Mrs. DeGraff in Sunday school. I wouldn't be in this predicament. And why didn't I listen to my old man when he warned me that a sailor's life isn't wine, women and song? All wine, women and song. Hey mate, can you bring a carton of Bogues Premium with you too? Because I need something to put drink down with the Panadol. And you can, you can just imagine this because that's the mindset. We might laugh at that. But there are people living like this. Too many of them. They have not developed a spiritual relationship with Jesus Christ to guide them in decision making. They lurch from one crisis to another, one relationship to another, one day to another, never really maturing, not living wisely. They decide by their feelings rather than by what they know is right and wrong. Then there are others who have developed a set of moral values and aim to live by them. 
And they try genuinely to do the right thing by their parents and their teachers and by their friends and their neighbours. But also, they, they haven't developed a spiritual relationship with Jesus Christ either. So when decisions need to be made, they don't turn to God in prayer and read his word and ask for the faith and courage of his spirit to guide them in paths of righteousness and show them his will. They don't test all things and hold fast what is good. You know what they do? They do what I just admitted to. They turn to Google they, uh, or Amazon or even Kurong and their friends. And they, they like, see which way the wind's blowing, see what the majority opinion is, see what the latest research is showing, see what, what uh, findings are coming up. They may, they may not be drunken sailors, but they're just as lost and godless. Just as lost. Only they're more refined in their godlessness and not nearly as honest or transparent as the fool up the rigging. The gospel, you see, is both for the, right, the unrighteous and the self-righteous. It's for both the unrighteous, the ungodly, and for the self-righteous, those who think they've got it all together but don't know Christ. But it's far more common to see the unrighteous and the sexually immoral coming to faith than it is to see the self-righteous. Because the very nature of self-righteousness is you think you're okay. All your energies are going into managing appearances. All your energies are going into making things appear okay and hold it all together, whereas the unrighteous, they've given up. There's not the same pretense because their sins just keep finding them out. They can't be hidden. And after that happens a number of times and a number of failures, they they just reach a level of frankness and honesty that actually heads them towards the kingdom. God loves people who are honest and transparent. Jesus was a friend of publicans and sinners. He ate with them. He knew that they were the ones that were most likely to be upfront about things. Whereas he... It was so difficult to get anywhere with the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the self-righteous. First Corinthians deals with plenty of drunken sailor types. It deals more with them than it does with respectable citizens of the Roman Empire. You see, the Corinthians were arguing complaining, they were suing one another, they were getting drunk at the Lord's table. There's a case of immorality in chapter 5 that wasn't even spoken amongst the Gentiles where it's reported that a, a, a young fellow was sleeping with his father's wife, presumably his stepmother. And instead of being grieved over this, the church is saying, hey, did you hear about this? Man. And they're, they're sort of glorying in the notoriety of it. They're very much more the fool up the rigging style of people than 
the self-righteous, those that have it together. But Paul deals with these issues and he comes in chapter 5, he deals with sexual immorality in that particular instance in the church and he, he says, and I'll just show you, verses 11, 12 and 13 at the end of chapter 5, but now I'm writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who calls himself a brother but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or a slanderer, a drunkard or a swindler. With such a man, do not even eat. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside, but expel the moral man from among you. So within the church fellowship, we're to treat sin seriously and we're to deal with it. And there is a responsibility of leaders to exercise some kind of discernment, what, is, what you could say is judgment. It says, are you not to judge those inside? God judges those outside, so exercise the necessary judgment on those within the fellowship and expel the moral man from among you. And then maybe trying to do that, it caused problems. Maybe... There were arguments and so they were taking one another to court because he goes straight into chapter 6 about lawsuits amongst believers. He says, If any of you has a dispute with another, dare he take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the saints, before God's people? And now he gives us an outline. He, He does a series of questions that all begin with, Do you not know? Do you not know? Do you not know? In other words, you should know. And he says, do you not know that the saints will judge the world? In verse 3, do you not know that we will judge angels? So he's saying, in the light of being born again and having life through faith in Jesus Christ, God has a purpose and a destiny for us such that in the age to come, we're going to be involved in judging angels. So why on earth are we taking one another before the secular law courts, before unbelievers and the unrighteous, and letting them settle our disputes? Something's not right here. Saying, don't you know? Don't you know? So he's he's reasoning from the basis of if you're born again and you're in a living relationship with God, you need to start heading heading in this direction. You need to understand certain things about who you are in Christ. And who we are in Christ is we're going to be seated on thrones in time to come and we're going to be judging angels. So let God teach us his wisdom. Let God guide us in his ways. Let us understand the first principles of God. And he says, verse 9, Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? And this is a really politically incorrect verse today in our society. It says, Do not be deceived. In other words, be under no illusion. You know, don't, don't take it any other way than this is the facts. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. 
It probably won't be too far down the track. Even to say this in a church is likely to get you maybe some, something slapped against you, a writ or charge or, or something, because it's regarded as, as intolerant and uh, not right. But all I'm doing is reading what the scriptures say, and it's prefaced by, do not be deceived about this. And if ever there was a warning for us in our day and age, it has to be this. That when it comes to matters of sexual immorality, we cannot afford to be deceived. We cannot be taking our cues from the from the changing fashion and culture of society around us because it's headed in its own direction. God is the one who made sex. He knows how it's meant to function. He understands and he put boundaries around it. He's the one who said sex is for marriage. Sex before marriage is, is really unhealthy and unhelpful. And if you're unfaithful when you are married, you are just going to bring fire and brimstone down on your own head and cause a whole lot of heartache and problems. So we need to listen to these things. And, and it's arising out of this question, don't you know? In other words, you should realise this. And we need to be reminded of it. We come through to verse 15. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? So again, he's, he's taken who we are in Christ as his starting point and he said, if we've been united to Christ, if, if as it were, our very bodies have been redeemed through Jesus, through his body broken for us, his blood shed for us, and God is going to raise up our mortal bodies at the last day, then we are, even bodily, united to Christ. It's not a physical thing, it's through the spirit, but there's a sense in which not just our soul or spirit, also our very bodies are in union with Christ. So much so that even though we die, yet shall we live. God's going to raise our bodies up. They're valuable to him. They're precious to him. And he says, if you go and have sex with a prostitute, you're actually linking your body, which is united with Christ, to a prostitute. He's saying, in other words, you, it's like you're creating unfaithfulness on Christ's part. You're dishonouring him. You're bringing him into a relationship that he said, I can't have any part of. And he's saying, don't you know this? Don't you realise that your very bodies belong to Christ? So clearly the Corinthians had a lot to learn. They needed to realise many things and, and Paul wants to teach them. He says again in verse 16, Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her? So there's literally a physical union. They become one. The two become one. That's the nature of sex. 
Verse 19, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? So he's saying, if you're born again and you're in a living relationship with God, God has taken his spirit and placed his spirit in you. In other words, God himself has taken up residence in you. You've become as holy as the Ark of the Covenant ever was in the tabernacle and temple where the Lord dwelt between the cherubim in the Holy of Holies. He's saying your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, not just your heart, but your life is a temple of the Holy Spirit. So given that fact, how consistent is it to live a sexually immoral life. He's saying it's not consistent. It's totally inconsistent. In fact, it's not just inconsistent. It, it, it causes anger on God's part. It generates wrath on his part. Romans 1 tells us this, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And then it goes on and lists a whole lot of sexually immoral things. So he's teasing out the implications of what it means to be born again and being a new creature in Christ. He's saying this is the direction that it's pointing you. It's pointing you heavenward. It's pointing you towards the discernment necessary to even judge angels. And anyone who knows down the track that they're going to judge angels ought to understand that they shouldn't be engaging in things that defile and deface the image of God in man. That quench and grieve his spirit in you. That anger God and not please God. That create problems and split families and leads to fatherlessness. How many times does sexual immorality before marriage lead to fatherlessness? Time after time after time. A generation of single mums has been raised up through this. And it creates heartache. How many times does unfaithfulness within marriage split families and contribute to fatherlessness. You only get visitation rights at certain times. Now, I'm not taking sides saying it, it's happening, it, it is a problem, and God wants to spare us this. And he set clear boundary markers around sex because sex is a covenantal act. It's an act of union. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. And then he links it back to our relationship with God. And he's, he's, when he says, shall I take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said, and here he quotes, the two will become one flesh. He quotes Genesis 2. But he who unites himself with the Lord is one with him in spirit. So when we've been born again through, through God's spirit, we have the same spirit. The spirit that's, that's, 
that's part of the Godhead now lives in us. There's a union between us. That we become his temple, his dwelling place. And he's saying, if we are one in spirit with the Lord, it's utterly inconsistent to become one with someone other than the one that we ought to be one with that we're married to or not be one with because we're not married. It's utterly inconsistent. So he, he, he's trying to show us gospel-centred reasoning on this. He's showing us out of who we are in Jesus, this is how he wants us to live. So as we tie this up now, because sexual intercourse is a covenantal act, God sees it as sacred. The act of sex seals the covenant relationship between a husband and wife, just as a blood sacrifice sealed a covenant in the Bible. Just the same. Every act of sexual intimacy thereafter between a husband and a wife is holy. It's an act of covenant renewal, just the same as the sacrifices were repeated in the temple. Morning and evening sacrifices. Monthly sacrifices, annual sacrifices, they were repeated. And it was a covenant renewal. It was saying, Lord, I belong to you, you belong to me. And that's what sex is saying between a husband and a wife. Outside of marriage, sex loses its God-intended purpose and Christ-oriented meaning. In God's eyes, only married sex is sacred. And sex between a husband and a wife. So God takes sex seriously because children who bear his image and reflect his glory issue forth from it. Acts of sexual immorality are acts of rebellion against God's good order and plan. Sexual immorality despises God's will and defies his wisdom just as surely as Adam and Eve's sin in the garden. Sex before marriage tends to breed fatherlessness. Adultery breaks up marriage and splits up families, leading to more fatherlessness. It's unhealthy, it's foolish, and it's dangerous. And God says, don't do it. Flee from it. Pornography is a form of idolatry. The human body is abstracted from any kind of interpersonal relationship and made into a picture, whether it's a movie or an actual photograph. Sexual intimacy is turned into voyeurism. There's no life in it, no bodily love, no heart, no relationship, and this is very dangerous. It's depersonalising the act of sex. It feeds a desire for sexual pleasure that is unrealistic and fanciful. It's divorced from another human being, a living person. It fuels passion but feeds dissatisfaction. It demoralises everyone involved with it. It breeds hiddenness and secrecy. It compounds shame and makes forming a healthy sexual relationship that much more difficult because it's fairly easy to just do it on your lonesome. But the complexities of interacting in a constructive way with someone else can be mysterious and difficult. But the good news in this passage, the really good news, is that there is hope. I've dwelt 
a fair amount on the bad news, but there is some super good news here. Look at what it says in verse 11. After it's listed all those things that, you know, people will not inherit the kingdom of God, it says, and that is what some of you were. Not are, not what you are, what you were. You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And so from, because of that great gospel reality of being born again through Jesus Christ by his Spirit and entering into a new creation relationship where the old has passed away and all things have become new and and all things are passing away and all things are becoming new and all things will pass away and all things will become perfectly new. Because of that, because of God's great love with which he has loved us, he cleanses us from all our sins. He washes us. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow, white like wool. That's the hope of the gospel. Sexual immorality is not unforgivable. It's eminently forgivable. While it can have terrible consequences, it's not beyond the grace of God. God is able to put Humpty Dumpty together again when all the king's horses and all the king's men can't. God is able to give a fresh start to people who've been living very loose lives and give them faithful marriages. God is able to, by his spirit, enable us to regain an increasing measure of self-control so that we're not ruled and governed by unbridled passions. This is the hope of the gospel. This is why we gather here. Who among us here is perfect? I'm not. Who among us here has not sinned? Who among us here isn't an adulterer, at least in their heart? Jesus said anyone who looks at a woman to lust has already committed adultery in his heart. Anyone who calls his brother a fool or an idiot has already murdered him in his heart. We have fallen short of the glory of God And thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is our hope. This is why we sing, blessed be the name of the Lord. This is why we come together in fellowship and encourage one another to live not sexually immoral lives, but increasingly pure lives and to stand by one another and walk the mile and bear the load and encourage one another. And there's there's no other place like it in the church, where we can be honest. We might have been like a a, a sailor up the rigging in the past, but God is able to sober us up, stand us on our feet, and we are able to listen and learn and grow up. God is faithful. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would teach us the importance of fleeing sexual immorality. I pray, Father, for any of us here today who struggle with what we look at. Teach us through the example of Job who made a covenant with his eyes never to think upon a woman, to think upon a woman. Lord, I pray 
for those who, who really do struggle in this kind of area, whether men or women, whether young or old, that you would give us the courage to believe that you've begun a good work in us and you will complete it. That we may be derelict and deficient in ourselves, but we are complete in Christ and you are growing us to maturity and you won't give up on us. Thank you, Lord. Thank you. Thank you for the hope that is ours. Not because we deserve it, but because you've lavished your love on us. That here in his love, not that we loved you, but that you loved us and sent your son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. That we should be called the children of God and that is what we are. Thank you, Lord. Blessed be our Father God. Blessed be our brothers and sisters here in Christ. And though we fall... Though we fall down many times, yet you will stand us up. We will never be down and out. We can stand and put on the armour of God and withstand the fiery darts of the wicked one by your empowering Holy Spirit. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name.